Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about King Jie of Xia, King Zhou of Shang, and Queen Daji. Oh, but you're wrong, the villain replies. One might, ah, uh, if only I had with me that celebrated Emperor Qie, one of the greatest scoundrels ever to have sat on the Chinese throne. Qie, the emperor of China, had a wife as cruel and debauched as he. Bloodshed was as naught to them, and for their exclusive pleasure they spilled rivers of it every day. Within their palace they had a secret chamber where victims were put to death before their eyes and while they enjoyed themselves. Theo, one of the prince's successors, had, like him, a very bloodthirsty wife. They invented a brass column, and this great cylinder they would heat red-hot. Unlucky persons were bound to it while the royal couple looked on. The princess, writes the historian from whom we have borrowed these touches, was infinitely entertained by these melancholy victims' contortions and screams. She was not content unless her husband gave her this spectacle frequently. With Kier would really be able to perform wonders. Both he and his wife, they say, immolated victims daily and would have them live twenty-four hours in death's cruelest agonies, and in such a state of suffering that they were constantly on the verge of expiring, but never quite able to die. For these monsters administered that kind of aid, which made them flutter between relief and torture, and only brought them back to life for one minute in order to kill them the next. So that was a passage from the novel Justine by the French Enlightenment author, the Marquis de Sade. He, of course, gave us the word sadism. And his so-called fiction spent a lot of time arguing the philosophical point that it was human nature to inflict pain on each other, to enjoy doing so even. But I bring up the passage because I've always been fascinated to find passages like this in the Western canon. Western authors and thinkers displaying their fascination with Chinese history and culture and reaching for Chinese examples to support their arguments. But doing so in a time when barriers of language and communication were much higher than today, and relying on translations and intermediate resources that might not be super reliable. But interestingly, in this instance, the Marquis de Sade had his information sufficiently correct. Well, okay, we'll see later if it's correct, but it comports with traditional accounts so that it's instantly apparent to someone like me what he's talking about. Even though the names are all weird through the 18th century transliterations into French, so Emperor Qie was clearly King Jie, the last king of the Xia dynasty. 
Theo, or Thiel in French, I suppose it would have been pronounced, was clearly King Zhou, the last king of the Shang dynasty. Note that the Marquis de Sade wrote emperor, but I'm saying king, because we're talking about the ancient Xia and Shang dynasties here, which predated the use of the title Huangdi, or emperor. And the unnamed wife of Theo, or King Zhou, was clearly Da Ji. While the unnamed historian telling us these tales was presumably Sima Qian, the grand historian from the Han Dynasty. Okay, who were these people? As I said, King Jie was the last king of the Xia Dynasty. So we believe. The Xia Dynasty was, according to traditional sources, the first hereditary dynasty in Chinese history, lasting from about 2070 BC to about 1600 BC, bridging the Neolithic Age and the Bronze Age. However, the traditional sources that tell us about the Xia Dynasty all date from much, much later than the alleged time of the Xia Dynasty itself. Indeed, the oldest extant form of Chinese writing ever found, the language on the oracle bones, dates from later than this. Archaeological finds that might correspond with the Xia Dynasty have also yet to be conclusively shown to be precisely that. So the jury is still out on whether the Xia dynasty truly ever existed. But, nevertheless, according to tradition, its 17th and last king was a man named Jie. He was supposed to have been remarkably strong, so much so that he could fight wild beasts with his bare hands. His favorite wife was a woman named Moxi. The historical records from the Han Dynasty, so like 1500 years after the fact, tells us that she was very beautiful, but liked to dress like a man, carried a sword, and came to court to participate in politics. Meanwhile, her husband, King Jie, became a great tyrant and invented the method of torture that the Marquis de Sade mentioned, erecting a hollow bronze column, tying victims to it, then lighting a fire within the column to heat it up so as to burn the victims to death. His tyranny led to a revolt, and King Tang replaced him circa 1600 BC, establishing the Shang dynasty. And, incidentally, his son supposedly escaped at this time and became the forefather of the Xiongnu people. And then we're told the pattern largely repeated itself. Fast forward five and a half centuries, and King Dixing, later called King Zhou, sat on the Shang throne. He was supposed to have been remarkably strong, enough to fight a hundred men at once 
and capable of fighting wild beasts with his bare hands. He was also supposedly remarkably clever. And he also had a beautiful wife, Da Ji, who participated in politics. Subsequent sources from the Zhou and Han dynasties, including the historical records, say that King Zhou did whatever Da Ji said. If Da Ji favored a man, he was ennobled. If she detested a man, he was killed. And again repeating the pattern, King Zhou became a tyrant, somehow reinventing the bronze column technique for torturing people to death. Sources report gratuitous acts of cruelty. For example, on one occasion, because the king was curious about the process of human gestation, he brought in a pregnant woman and cut open her belly just to see. When his uncle tried to tell him to knock it off, he had the uncle killed. He supposedly held feasts so wasteful and extravagant that they involved entire swimming pools filled with liquor and pieces of meat hanging from so many spikes in the ground that they resembled a forest. And he and Daji and their fellow pleasure seekers partied naked amidst the meat forest and the pools of wine. So, again, the tyrannical excesses triggered a revolt. While the main body of the Shang army was campaigning in the southeast, the domains to the west, allied under the leadership of the domain and people known as the Zhou. Note that this was the Zhou, while the king they were trying to replace was called Zhou. The tonal difference between the two names is clear in Mandarin, but may be hard to hear if you don't speak the language. So, sorry about the confusion. Anyway, the allied tribes marched against the Shang regime and decisively defeated it in 1046 BC in the Battle of Muye, which incidentally was the first demonstrably provable battle in Chinese history. After his defeat, King Zhou put on a suit made of jade, climbed atop the platform or altar meant for making sacrifices to the gods, and set himself on fire. Daqi then either hanged herself or was beheaded by the conquerors. And in a final parallel of the pattern, a Shang nobleman called Jizi was at this time allowed to escape. He supposedly went to the Korean peninsula and, according to one tradition, established what later became Korea. So I was recently reminded of all of this after a visit to the Museum of the Institute of History and Philology at Academia Sinica, Taiwan's central research institution. The place has a sizable collection of bronzes, oracle bones, and even human remains from the Shang and Zhou dynasties. There was also an exhibit on rehabilitating the image of Da Ji, Queen of Shang. There are many reasons to doubt the traditional accounts. 
First, there's the obvious sense of repetition. We're getting very similar stories about both King Jie of Xia and King Zhou of Shang. That repetition suggests a kind of stereotypical myth-making. Also, as many historians have observed, the later the source, the more gruesome and lurid the details about King Zhou's abuses became. Obviously, the later the source, the less reason we have to trust it, and the more chance there was for exaggeration. By the time of the Ming Dynasty novel, Feng Shenbang, which was based on the Zhou conquest of the Shang, the exaggeration became so blatant that half the plot points in the book were actually supernatural. And the story was as much about the emergence of various Taoist deities as the dynastic struggle. Another important point is that men and women were much more equal in ancient Chinese society prior to the Zhou dynasty than later. The charges leveled against both King Jie of Xia and King Zhou of Shang included this idea that each allowed the women in their lives a lot of power. King Jie's consort, Mo Xi, walked around in men's clothes and carried a sword. We know for a fact that during the Shang dynasty, women often held senior positions in government, not merely as the wives of kings and princes, but as officers in their own right. Shang women even commanded armies as generals. Da Qi might have been such a female general, a warrior queen who fought against the enemies of her kingdom. In that case, although the traditional image of her was that of a temptress, a more accurate picture might be more like Viola Davis in The Woman King, about the female warriors of the 19th century African kingdom, Dahomey. When we're told that King Zhou did whatever she said, that might have been just a matter of a king deferring to his most trusted military officer. When we're told that, after the Shang's defeat, Da Qi either hanged herself or was beheaded by the conquerors, that might have been not so much the death of a consort so much as a soldier accepting her fate. And all of these allegations against the Shang and the Xia were only allegations suggesting that there was something wrong with having women run things, because in the Zhou dynasty and later, men and women became much more unequal in Chinese society. Starting in the Zhou dynasty, the notion that women might interfere in affairs of state came to be seen as highly improper. So much so that a king who allowed it to happen apparently deserved to be replaced. Also, as many female listeners no doubt don't need to be told, powerful women tend to be blamed for things. So there's always been this sense that Da Qi somehow corrupted her king, that he might have been fine if it weren't for her pernicious influence. 
It's interesting to look at the charges actually laid against King Zhou in ancient times. Nothing specifically about any atrocities. Listening to women—that was allegation number one. Okay. Second was that he declined to hire relatives as officials. Kind of a weird charge. So his fault was that he wasn't nepotistic enough. Modern scholars think the idea was that the king was diminishing the power of some aristocratic families, and they were upset about this. Instead, the next charge said he hired fugitives as officials. Again, kind of strange from our modern perspective. The thing to understand here is that during these early feudal times, China was really a federation of many tribal domains. One might upset the powers that be in one domain and run to another, becoming a fugitive in the process. And the Shang regime didn't seem to care about this too much, and allowed such fugitives from one domain to become officials in another. Maybe not a great idea, but hardly horribly tyrannical. Then there was the allegation that King Zhou of Shang was insufficiently serious in observing the rites and in worshiping the gods. So, this was a time when human sacrifices were still common. The museum at Academia Sinica, in fact, has a large number of the skulls of victims of Shang-era human sacrifice on display. Archaeologists have found that tombs dating to the last years of the Shang Dynasty showed a diminution in the number of human sacrifices being conducted. When they accused King Zhou of not taking the rites seriously enough, then what they were really saying was that he had reduced the amount of human sacrifice going on. Today we would look at this as highly progressive, the opposite of tyrannical. So how did King Zhou get such a terrible reputation? How have the poor guy and his warrior queen been so unfairly maligned for three thousand years? Part of it was, of course, Zhou Dynasty propaganda. History is written by the winners, so the saying goes. For the same reason, the Shang Dynasty, when it came in around 1600 BC, presumably maligned King Jie of the departing Xia Dynasty. But it wasn't solely state propaganda, because the view of King Zhou as a tyrant and Daji as a sadistic temptress didn't immediately solidify in the wake of conquest in 1046 BC. Rather, it developed over the centuries, until even after the Zhou Dynasty itself had fallen. So, a lot of this rather had to do with a tendency in Chinese historiography to turn personalities from early history into stereotypes of good and evil. The ancient Taoist text Liezi already made this observation. All that is good under heaven, we attribute 
to King Shun, King Yao, the Duke of Zhou, and Confucius. All that is bad. We attribute to King Jie and King Zhou. And a guy like the Marquis de Sade, thinking that the examples of King Jie of Xia and King Zhou of Shang served to illustrate humanity's fundamentally sadistic nature, was of course off base. He might still have a point philosophically, as Nietzsche. Might have had a point in the genealogy of morals, but in reality, the supposed tyrants of ancient China are far from good examples to cite. Okay, on that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.